0: The scripture for today comes from Ruth chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law, since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This is the Word of God. We're back in the book of Ruth. Uh, If you're just joining us, uh, the year's theme is grit, and we thought it was appropriate for us to go through the book of Ruth, and we'll explain how those things connect today. But as it was read, we're going to be looking at Ruth chapter 2. and We're going to pick up the story from Ruth chapter 2, verse 3. But here's a quick one-minute review of what's happened thus far, if you're just joining us, in the story of Ruth. We're going to be here for a couple more weeks. The story of Ruth takes place during the time of Judges, a very dark and chaotic time in the history of God's people. As you know, if you read the book of Judges, it it goes from depressing to more depressing. No king, no order, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That was sort of the summary of the book of Judges. God's people get in trouble, God rescues them, they go back to their own ways, gets in trouble again, God rescues them. It's a repeat. There's no sense of leadership over that, over the nation of Israel. And it's in that kind of chaotic time, the author introduces us to this character, this story of, of a Jewish family originally from the city of Bethlehem, where Christ was born. Uh, In the city of Bethlehem, there's a family, husband's name is Elimelech, wife's name is Naomi, they run into a hard time, there is no food in the time of Bethlehem, so they decide, they make this big decision to move away from their Jewish community, to move to a country in Moab, uh, far away, pagan nation, no Jewish temple, there while they're living as immigrants, as expats. Naomi, the wife, loses Elimelech, her husband. She has two sons with them. Both of them eventually get married, find Moabite women to be their wives, which is another big deal because Jews uh, did not condone that. But that's life. Maybe Ruth or Naomi did not have enough money to send people to, to bring, to come live with them in, in Moab. Um, they have two, two daughters-in-law. They live life. Eventually, more tragedy happens in the family. Both sons, we're not told what happens, but both sons pass away without having any children. In fact, they have no sons, which is also another tragic event for this lady named Naomi, because at the end of this journey, she traveled all this way, hoping for a better future. Many of our parents, uh, or my parents, moved out of Korea, hoping for a better future in the States, and imagine you lose everything. Um, and really, at the end of chapter one, uh, Naomi decides to return home because she hears that there is actually food in Bethlehem now. And really, Naomi, as a foreign widow, you really can't have life, so decides to move back. And as she moves back, her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who's, who's the, the, the book is named after, decides to follow her. And as they come back home, that's not a one-minute review, I'm sorry. They come back home And all the townspeople find out Naomi's back in Bethlehem. And Naomi looks at them and says, Do not call me Naomi. Do not call me beautiful. Call me Mara. For God's hand has gone out against me. Right? So really chapter 1 comes to the close with one important, very, very important question. Can Naomi ever recover from this tragedy? Will God ever show up? And again, Naomi's bitter, angry, And really, all but ready to call it quits. Uh, Ruth, on the other hand, she will not give up. Right? She's ever so hopeful. We saw that last week. Out of faith, she tells her mother-in-law, I'm going to go out, look for food. Naomi, you can stay here. I know you're struggling. I know this is all really hard. But I'm going to go and see if I can find some food. Hoping to find a God-fearing landowner. Because according to the Jewish law, God put in this welfare system where the widows and the orphans and the foreigners can actually go glean after God-fearing owners in that land. So this is verse, from verse four. This is where we pick up the story. Um, we're going to be in all of chapter two, but I just read two verses because I think those are the most important verses. So I'm just going to walk us through the story. If you have your Bibles, you just open it up uh, to Ruth chapter two. As it turned out, as Ruth was hoping that there would be a God-fearing owner. There is a God-fearing owner who is introduced to the story in chapter 2, verse 1. This man named Boaz. And there are two things that we need to know about this guy. He is a worthy man. A man of great substance. And two, he is from the same family as Elimelech. And those things will come into greater uh, importance as the story goes forward. But there's this man named Boaz. A man from Naomi's very own clan. So Ruth goes, and and I guess the workers, before Boaz arrives, the workers said, yeah, you could glean here. Our owner, he's a great guy. He's a God-fearing man. So Ruth uh, happens to land in in this field owned by Boaz. And and while Ruth is working hard and and trying to gather some food for her and her her mother-in-law, Boaz happens to arrive and check on the progress of work, check on his workers. So as soon as Boaz saw the young foreign woman, Ruth, he obviously recognized her because she's not part of his staff. She stands out. She looks different, different skin color, different the way she dressed. So he he goes to one of the managers. and He asks, who's this woman? Well, actually, that's not the question. If you look at the passage, it's not who is this woman. It's whose is she? Who does she belong to? Where does she fit in this society? That's really the question. So the manager replies, well, she's the the foreign woman that everyone's been talking about. She's the one that came back with her Jewish mother-in-law who's been widowed in Moab. Her name's Ruth. Obviously, it's clear that in Bethlehem, everybody knew that Naomi had returned and there was this Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth. Ruth. But it's also clear that Ruth is an outsider. For that, between their conversations, it's also very clear that Ruth is an outsider. She doesn't really belong in Bethlehem. And many of us can relate to that feeling of not really belonging to place where we live. Uh, I grew up both in Korea uh, and also in the States. Um, growing up in uh, Korea and moving to the States, I remember moving to McLean, Virginia, very wealthy neighborhood, I grew up in the countryside of Korea, one traffic light, you know, wore my sister's clothes, show up to school, everybody's like, this guy does not belong here. Because even the foreigners, McLean, Virginia, if you don't know, is where CIA, a lot of government people are there. Even the foreigners are wealthier than people from Virginia. Like, like me, foreigner, not wealthy, they're just like, who is this guy, right? Um, and I remember coming back to Korea uh, 21 out of college and and to work and I remember coming here and people instantly just seeing me They're like he's not Korean just my mannerism the way I approach the way I talk even now uh, You know living in Korea people know my neighbors don't they don't know what I do They think I'm some kind of uh, business owner, but they're like yeah that guy speaks English, and he's not part of this this society I visit home last summer, took my family, and my daughters realized that you don't know what you're doing here, right? This is a complete, I feel neither place, Korea or US, I never feel like I'm really quite home. That's sort of the reality of growing up in in two different cultures. Um, But that was totally Ruth, yet, if you can think about it, she was not just an outsider, but what made the matters harder for Ruth in this society was that she was, not a, she, was, she was not only a foreigner, but she didn't have any wealth. It's different to be wealthy, and, and you're part of a new, new, new culture, you're a foreigner, that's actually good life, but when you are poor, and you are in a new place, that is a tough place. She's a widow, she's a foreign widow, widow. she's a foreign widow without any son, she's at the bottom of the social ladder, there's no more going down. And it's quite clear by this time, Boaz had indeed heard about Ruth, heard about her faithfulness. Perhaps because he's from the same clan, when the news got out, he heard about it. He heard about the Moabite woman who had left her people, her land, to follow her widow mother-in-law. And he also knew that she, she probably was part of his clan. And that's why this conversation will begin to make sense, because he calls her my daughter, I think Boaz knew more than Ruth realized. So verse 8, we're already at verse 8. Boaz goes to speak to Ruth directly. He doesn't no longer go through a manager, which was a totally uncommon practice. A man of Boaz's Boaz's status, he's at the top of the social ladder. He's wealthy, he's a man of substance, he's a landowner. He's a man. He goes directly to Ruth which was shocking, which was scandalous. Not because he's old man and she's a young woman, but really just socially, there was no inaction between these two groups of people. Yet he, he goes and he tells her, he, he refers to her as my daughter. That's, that's verse 8, my daughter. A rather lavish way of referring to a foreign widow, which would have, I mean, can you imagine the scene, the workers are working and... Everybody notices Ruth, but they just deal with her. And then the, the boss shows up, the landowner shows up, and landowner goes, and everybody's watching, goes to this foreign woman and says, My daughter. How shocking that would have been for the people at, at the scene. The walkers, the workers are pretending probably not pretending to not look, but they can't help but look. There's Boaz, there's Ruth. And Boaz goes to her and treats her with kindness and says, My daughter. Everybody's eyes are on Boaz and Ruth and their interaction. A well-respected, worthy man goes over to a foreign widow widow, who is not even on his staff. He treats her with extreme kindness. He offers her water. Drink from the same jar? That's a big deal for, for Jews. You did not share... Water jars, or bowls, or spoons, but foreigners. And Boaz says, "Drink from my water jar, like same water jar that everyone's drinking. You are invited." And he sets his table before her. He says, "You are welcome to my table. You're going to eat with us in this place." Eyebrows would have been raised. Some may have even felt uncomfortable eating next to this woman from the pagan city. Yet what you realize at that moment, as soon as Boaz went up to Ruth and said, you're my daughter, none of those things that people are thinking or assuming or wanting or not wanting hold true weight because the boss, the master of the field, the worthy man has invited, has welcomed this woman in. No one will dare to discredit or look down on Ruth anymore. No one will dare to mistreat her Two words, my daughter changes everything for Ruth and her reality at that moment. And isn't this what we desire as we live life? To be accepted, to be welcomed, to to be part of the group, to be invited in, to know that we belong. And for those who are in Christ... That is our actual reality, right, friends? God has called us His own, right? Christ has created a way for us to not only be received, but to be accepted and loved. And I know many of you heard these words. Many of you heard these words being preached over and over again. Yet truth is many of us who are in Christ still have a hard time trusting this reality, Trusting that my identity in Christ is what truly defines who I am deep inside, we have a hard time living this out. Some of us have grown up in a harsh, difficult environment. Some of some of us have experienced sense of abandonment. Perhaps like Naomi, life has. Punched in the face and, and again and again, and you feel like I can't get up anymore. Perhaps you something really traumatic, tragic, mistrust, betrayal. Some of us have been bullied, discounted, abandoned at a very young age. Uh, we, we were dog sitting. A uh, little, little Maltese from one of our congregation members was traveling. This little Maltese, name's Olaf. White, Olaf, I think that's a little racist, but, you know, whatever, we'll, we'll get past that, Olaf. Uh, and this dog was abandoned when, and, and was rescued and, and was with us for two weeks. Every time, like, the, the dog's just terrified, always terrified, right? And so, so Olaf was happy to just hang out with my two daughters, but whenever I show up, I'm the one walking the thing, right? I'm the one feeding the thing, but, you know, every time I show up, it's just terrified, when I walk uh this dog Olaf, he would he would only walk on the edges and nobody can be behind him. He would just panic if I was like behind him. So I'm like, oh my my, my wife is a uh, counselor therapist, right? So I talked to her like, yeah, like this dog. My wife's like, yeah, this dog's definitely been damaged. Like there's abandonment and abuse. And I'm just like, wow. But yet yet so many of us, maybe, maybe we, we could hide better, but we've experienced painful things. I've experienced unbelievable things as I've done ministry, right? Just the things that people can do and what we've experienced. And some of us are still struggling with carrying our past with us like this little dog Olaf. But friends, whatever you've come out of, whatever you have experienced, your past perhaps... Even what you're dealing with now as you live life, work, family, you fill in the blank. This is, I can tell you this is true. You are not defined by any of those things anymore because Scripture is clear that we have been redeemed and renewed. Let me say this again. Breathe. Breathe. You have been redeemed and renewed, and we're not defined. We may feel like we're defined by things that were done to us, things that were taken from us, things that were said about us. But those of us who are in Christ, we are not defined by those things. Those things are not true. We're only defined by who Christ says we are and what He has done for us. Let me say this as well, right? If you look at verse 10, Ruth responds in, in, in shock, right? She falls on, her fa- on face, verse 10, bowing to the ground. She doesn't, she knows she doesn't belong here. She tells Boaz, like, why are you nice to me? I'm a foreign woman. She knows Boaz doesn't owe her anything. She knows what she deserves as a foreigner. Perhaps she expected to be mistreated. Yet even even Ruth's idea of what she deserves, who she is, what she thinks about herself, holds no weight. Because Boaz, the master, has invited her in. Do you see that? Ruth is like, what's going on? Like, I don't belong here. You shouldn't be nice to me. I don't deserve to drink from the same jar or eat from the table. And it doesn't matter. Boaz says, no, you're my daughter. And that's the reality. So in the same way, in this current season of life, you might feel like you don't belong to God for whatever reason. Or, or when you come to worship, there are lies that enemy wants you to believe, even maybe today, that you don't belong, that you haven't done enough, that you're not a good person, that you have many baggages, too many baggages for, for God to receive you. Yet friends, scripture is very clear. Let me give you one passage, Second Corinthians 5.17. Paul says, and Paul is speaking to, if you read 2 Corinthians, this is a messed up people. Paul's like challenging these people. Yet this is what Paul encouraged them by saying. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, not just good ones, not just faithful ones, not just good givers. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And look at verse 18. It does not say, all this is from your own faithfulness. It does not say that. All this is from your hard work. It does not say that. All this is from your own reputation that you have built. No, it doesn't say any of that. Verse 18, it says, all this is from who? What does it say? From God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Do you see that? So really, even this morning as you're sitting here Whatever you think about yourself, even whatever you think about yourself, even if you hate yourself, you don't think you belong, here, you deserve to, to, to be received by God, doesn't hold way because the Master says you belong. Master says you are a new creation because I have come to give you life. Amen? Amen? Because I think sometimes I, I, I sit in sermons... Not too many times because I, I do this every week, but I hear people preach and I'm like, yeah, that's, that's great, but that's not me. And I think sometimes I let my feelings get the best of me, what I believe about myself or what, what I think. But, 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 but scripture holds higher weight. Scripture is the ultimate authority and God says, you are a new creation. It is, in fact, arrogance. It's pride for us to say we don't deserve God. That's another sermon, so I won't jump in there. But verse 8, back to the story. So Boaz tells Ruth, don't go anywhere else. Just work here. Just glean from my field. Follow the woman that's working for me. Do not go anywhere else because he knows what she will face as an outsider. If she goes to another field, she knows as a foreign widow without sons, she's going to get, at the very least, harassed. Probably worst. No representation. So later, and in verse nine again, he even tells you you can drink from the same jar as other workers. And later, verse fourteen, he says, "The table I have prepared a table, and you want you can come and eat and eat and eat until you are filled." Again, back in those days, sharing a table, sharing a meal in a Jewish culture with someone who is outside was a big deal. You only share meals with someone you would consider part of your family, part of your clan, which actually Ruth is. If offering to take water from the same jar wasn't offensive enough, I mean... If you imagine these workers, they're not all friendly like Boaz. And sitting, eating, and seeing this Moabite woman, a pagan worshiper, eating with them, this would have at least made some people really upset. Yet, Boaz puts his own reputation on the line to invite, to bring Ruth in. So again, verse 10, Ruth asks Why? Why show me such kindness? Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me? I'm just a foreigner. And here is Boaz's response in verse 11. And that was the passage we read. Boaz says, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husbands have been fully told to me and how you left your Father and mother and your native land came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. A full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You see, Boaz helps Ruth to see that her resolution, royalty, and courage has not gone unnoticed. This is the first time in in the whole book someone recognizes and acknowledges what Ruth has done. Nobody said nothing nice to Ruth the whole time. Naomi, when they came back, said, I came back with nobody. I came back with nothing. Ruth was considered nothing. And for the first time, someone says, Man, what you've done, God sees it. God recognizes it. Recognizes and God will repay you. I, I I remember I remember uh, car, washing cars for summer when I was like sophomore in um, high school. I worked with this terrible Korean boss, terrible. Uh, made like 650 washing cars with a uh, group, group of Mexicans. We were just like, you know, I was like learning Spanish and we, we were washing cars and it was hard. It was rough. It was one of our church members offered me a job and, you know, and it was just tough. And I remember like, Car details, I don't know if you know car details, it's like crazy work, like they'll pay you like 200 bucks and you have to like clean every little corner of the car, and I remember working hard, summer, sweating, just like dying, and then one of my managers comes and says, Simon, you did a good job, I almost like cried, I'm like, oh, that's so nice, someone recognized that this is a hard job and I've done it, you know, um, again, this is what Boaz, Boaz does. And the same way, friends, your resolution, your obedience, your commitment, your courage in God has not gone unnoticed. The temptation, especially when things get hard and tough in the storm, is to question and doubt whether following Jesus is worth at all. In fact, many people asked this question during COVID and did not come back. It wasn't worth it. Does God even care? Does does He even see how how much I'm struggling, how this wind and the wave is just just getting to me? Does He he not see how, how tired I am? Does my obedience count for anything? Friends, a major lesson, not only from our passage, not only the story of Ruth, but throughout the Scripture, is the God that we worship, He sees all things. And nothing passes by him. God is not deaf, he's not blind. He will reveal himself in due time and your obedience counts to God. And he in due time he's going to repay you. So this means the way you respond to a hard, difficult seasons of life matters to God. The way you work, you may think, oh, I'm just making these greedy people more wealthy. I'm teaching these kids that are just ungrateful. The way you operate your business, the way you treat others, especially people who cannot benefit you in any way, the way you serve your spouse Even when you are utterly frustrated and upset, we had the same twenty fights, and we just can't seem to get over the same fight. Too real, like too too much of our, our story. Those things matter to God. God cares deeply about those things. And remember last week, when we were at the end of chapter 1 and beginning of chapter 2, we touched on this idea of God and what truly concerns God. We thought about, okay, what, what, is, what is God really concerned with when I think about my life or your life? We talked about this, God's purpose in your life has less to do with this idea of success or the idea of achieving great things and more to do with how we actually handle our everyday life mundane things the little things the process because we talked about we 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 live in a society culture where we celebrate success success is is the greatest thing we care a lot about success we care a lot about setting goals achieving big and great things many of us living in a city like so we always Talking in future, future terms. Later, end of this year, next year, I'm going to get this job. I'm gonna buy this car. I'm gonna live in this house, and we're gonna go travel and do, we we live in this future world. Whereas we we, through, we see through scripture that God cares far more about the process and the journey. That was that was last week's sermon. I mean, think about what's making you worried, like. Anyone losing sleep? Think about why you lost sleep this week. Think about what's really robbing you of your joy. What keeps you up at night? Like you know, for so many of us, myself included, I think we are so result-oriented. We are so result-oriented that we make, will make compromises to get to. The goal to 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 meet the goal to, to get to this idea of success. And, and I'm tempted, even in pastoral ministry. Can can I be honest, first five years of church planting, or maybe first three years, last two, I think God's, God's been teaching me. But first three years, like when we planted church, I was like, I want to prove to people that I'm a good pastor. I want to prove to people that I can plan a church. I want to prove to people that that I could be this great leader I want to uh, this is the whole time every time someone came and visited a church, I was like singing and dancing and saying hello, thinking, man, I want to prove to people that I can do it, that I could be successful, someone who can do the job. and the temptation is to cut corners just to get things done just to grow the church, just to make sure we can make the budget. Yet if I learned anything over the last five years, God cares far more about how I approach small mundane things, how I speak to my daughters, how I speak to my wife, how I genuinely care about people that serve in our community, genuinely care about our staff instead of trying to lord over them, trying to make them do what I think is good. I've done that. I've, I've, I remember I was like miserable doing that. God cares about these things. It's hard, it's counter cultural, even in ministry. I mean, imagine in other places. How do we do that? How, how, how does that become reality? How can we genuinely live like that? We can only live like that if we anchor. Our, our, our identity in the truth of the gospel, like continue to come back to the gospel, not just Sunday, not just Monday, but every day. Literally remind yourself, preach the gospel to yourself as you struggle with those things. Because the only the gospel provides the true remedy uh, even in pastoral ministry. Like I literally have to preach the gospel to myself when I'm so frustrated and angry or bitter or upset. Because the gospel reminds us our invitation to this place, our invitation to, to God, our invitation to God's table is, is, is not because we've done something well, not because we've earned our way to the table or our own merit. The gospel also reminds us that we serve God, who deeply cares about how we conduct ourselves. God, who is not impressed by our titles or metrics or numbers. Jesus came and Jesus was like, You Pharisees, I don't care about your titles. You are dead on the inside, you are graves. In fact, if we anchor ourselves in the truth of the gospel, what Christ has done for us, no sum of money, no number of trophies or accolades will be able to do what the cross has done for us. Everything else in life, trophies, accolades, achievement, success is earned. You got you to gotta grit and grind. And you got you to gotta go out there Right work. Everything else is earned. Yet the gospel, it is a pure gift. The only gift that will true, truly satisfy our constant yearning to be accepted and loved. Verse seventeen, at the end of that's 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 it. Child running like like just running like children, the way they love, the way they receive love. Right. That's it. Right there. Verse 17, at the end of the workday, Ruth returns home with the ephah of barley. That's about 14 kilograms of barley. That's a lot. Can you imagine carrying 14 kilograms of barley? That's a lot. And, and, Na- and com- comes back to Naomi. And Naomi cannot believe all that's happened for them. Just in that one day, Ruth goes out and she brings in 14 kilograms of barley. Yet the most shocking piece of information has nothing to do with the barley. But it has everything to do with the the landowner, this man Boaz, a man within Naomi knows, Ruth doesn't know, but Naomi knows man this man is part of our clan. And we'll talk about that next week, what that means. Kinsman Redeemer, this idea. And for the first time in the story, Naomi comes alive, Mara, bitterness comes alive. And her heart begins to soften towards God, towards Yahweh, and she cries out. There's even like, like praise in verse 20. The Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Verse 20, if you want to circle any words, it's the word kindness. The word kindness, hesed. Everyone say hesed. This is the key theme of the story of Ruth and and perhaps all of the scripture. The idea of hesed in Old Testament, right? Verse 20, the word translated as kindness in our text is hesed. It is an ancient Hebrew word, hesed, that encompasses love, grace, mercy, and kindness all together. This idea of long-suffering love. A superior love, perhaps the most generous love and faithfulness one can display. Love and care that goes far beyond duty and obligation. Type of love that is never fickle, not just situational. Hassid love is love that will not give up, that will not run dry, that will not quit. And really, friends, the kindness, the Hassid kindness that Boaz has shown to Ruth, Is just a small glimpse of the love of God the Father for you and I. The role of Boaz in our story is not to say, Hey, you guys, we got to be like Boaz. We got to be able to love like Boaz. No, the, the role of Boaz in this story is about showing us the love of the Father. What Boaz has shown in all of chapter 2, welcoming Ruth in, going and talking to her, inviting her to her table, giving her water, and protecting her, telling her, do not go anywhere. All of this, what the author is trying to show us is that this is our father. This is the way father loves you and I. And, And as you can see the yellow banner behind me, the year's theme for our community is grit. We've been talking about this last four weeks, grit. So when we we read Ruth's story, it's not hard to see Ruth is a great example of someone who displays grit. If anyone is gritty, it's Ruth. The way she's going out, working, being faithful, following mother-in-law, not giving up, she's showing grit. She's a wonderful model of someone who has great faith. Yet again, it would be a great tragedy if that's the main message we hear from this book. Be like Boaz, be like Ruth, do not be like Naomi. That's not the message the author wants to tell us. Friends, the greater theme of the story about this Moabite woman and her Jewish mother in law and this, this man, Boaz. The, great, the greater theme behind this story, perhaps in all of scripture, scripture, is God who has shown true kindness over and over and over again to people that are fickle at best. God who is truly gritty, greatly committed to us no matter what. That's the picture of God. Not only the book of Ruth is showing us, but all of Scripture. God who refuses to give up God who is in complete control, completely sovereign. And God who is always committed to fulfilling His good promise in His people. That's why if you read through Exodus, you're just like, God, just find new people. Why don't you try Koreans? Jews don't work. Try someone else. No, God says, I will not give up. I will not wipe them out. I will not be... I will continue. I will go with them. I will remind them. I will send prophets. You will kill them, but I will send more prophets. I will send my son because I am wholeheartedly committed. I have hased love for these people. And really the story of Ruth, as we place ourselves in this story, is that we are the recipient of that kind of commitment. And so the goal of preaching through the book of Ruth as we talk about grit is, I hope we don't walk away, right? We've, I've been talking about this for like three, four weeks. I hope we don't walk away. Oh, Pastor Simon wants us to be gritty, wants us to put our heads down, love God no matter what. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is see the God that we worship, see the nature of God that the author is showing us and allow that reality to challenge the way we live our lives that's really the idea. and That's really the lesson that the author wants to show us. In chapter 2, it's kindness. It's hasad love. It doesn't matter if Ruth thinks she doesn't deserve it. Master says it. I love you. I got you. You're not going anywhere. That's it, guys. That's really the lesson. Amen? Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for... Uh, beautiful image of the love that you have for us, yet yeah, Lord, it is our confession. We, some of us are jaded, some of us have experienced hard and difficult, most of us have experienced hard and difficult things in life that, that hinders us from truly trusting in the God that you have revealed yourself to be through scripture. So really, Holy Spirit, there's so much we can do with our own power, communication, listening, and thinking and processing. We really need your Spirit that lives in us to be able to help us truly see, truly feel, truly know the love of God, the Hassan love of God. Father, even at this time, as we're sitting here, as we're watching, I pray that you will unlock these areas that have been locked away for so long. You would allow us to surrender. Just like this Naomi moment where Naomi said, call me Mara, I'm done. I don't want to do anything to Yahweh. And then she sees, man, Yahweh has not given up. Yahweh is still here. Yahweh is still moving his purpose forward. And then there is worship. I just pray there'll be worship in this place, worship in our hearts. Lord be, be kind to us, especially those that are struggling with this idea of God being kind and God being good. Speak to us once again. Just send we pray. Amen.